Our reading is Isaiah chapter 66, you can find on page 752 in the Church Bibles. This is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a man, and whoever offers a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood, and whoever burns memorial incense like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and their souls delight in their abominations. So I also will choose harsh treatment for them, and will bring upon them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight, and chose what displeases me. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, yet they will be put to shame. Hear that uproar from the city, hear that noise from the temple. It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all they deserve. Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen such things? Can a country be born in a day, or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb when I bring to delivery, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn over her. For you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. For this is what the Lord says, I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment upon all men, and many will be those slain by the Lord. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following the one in the midst of those who eat the flesh of pigs and rats and other abominable things, they will meet their end together, declares the Lord. And I, because of their actions and their imaginations, am about to come and gather all nation and tongues, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations, 
and they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots and wagons, and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them, as the Israelites bring their grain offerings, to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. This is God's word. Simon, thank you very much. Please do keep that passage open in front of you. That would be very helpful to me. And it would be great too if you could find the back of the notice sheet where you'll find an outline for where we're going. And if I've not met you so far, let me add my welcome. My name's Andy Towner. I'm the assistant minister here for at least a few more weeks. And it's great to welcome you here this morning. Why don't we pray as we come to God's word. Our loving Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are the God for whom heaven is your throne and the earth your footstool. You are the God's whose hand made everything and you saw all that you had made and saw that it was very good. We praise you that you are God on high, sovereign, king. And we pray you might speak to us please this morning by your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The key thing about this passage is to remember that it comes from the Lord. You've got to remember who's speaking this morning. It's the Lord And that might sound really obvious, but if you start playing with it for a bit, it's very important when you ask why questions. Why is something like this? It's very important that that question often comes back to the character of the boss. So if you want to ask why the modern Olympics the way they are, why the modern Olympic movement the way it is, start asking that question. It's changed a lot in the last 30 years. Why? Juan Antonio Samaranch has been the key figure, hasn't he? 1980 to 2001, he was the chair of the International Olympic Committee. He has been the driving force behind all those changes. Why are the Olympics like they are? Why do things work like they do in those settings? Because of him. He's been the boss, one of the most influential people on the International Olympic movement for years and years and years. You want a more trivial example? Uh, read Bertie Wooster, Jeeves and Wooster stories. Bertie Wooster, always wondering why his life is like it is. And the answer is because of one of his aunts. And it kind of depends which aunt is operative at that time, whether, whether Bertie's kind of mess is positive or whether Bertie's mess is not so positive. Well, why is the world like it is, says Bertie Wooster? Well, it's one of his aunts. And you remember the famous line, aunt calls to aunt like mastodons across a primordial swamp, which has got to be one of the best lines in the whole of P.G. Woodhouse. Why is it that your workplace is like it is? Why is it that something's done that way, not that way? Why is something uh, done that frustrating way, or that nitpicky way, or that relaxed way? It's your boss, isn't it? Or your boss's boss. The why is life like this question comes back to the character of the person in charge. It was true as children, wasn't it? If you look back at your childhood, well, it's because of your parents, probably, wasn't it? Do you see? And so the very start of this passage, it's the Lord who says. 
And the passage is going to come with lots of our questions about the, the world. But the primary answer is going to be, the world is like this because of the character of the God who made and rules the world. So why is there suffering and evil in this world? Primary answer, look at what God's like. Why can't God just make himself clearer? Primary answer, look at what God's like. Why doesn't God save everyone? Primary answer, look at what God's like. You see, the why questions, they come back to the character of the person in charge. And so it's very important when we hear God speak, that he says, this is the Lord. This is what I, the Lord, say. I am the eternal one. I'm the creator. I'm speaking. You see, Isaiah 66 comes at God's pattern for the entire universe, the entire time from the beginning to the end. comes out, what is God's shape for the world? Why is it like this? Because of who God is. The question is always going to come back to him. That's why we're looking at the Lord who speaks, suckers and saves, and must not be ignored. That's kind of how it works. And all of my questions about that, and all of your questions about that, and all of our friends' questions about that are going to come back to, what's the Lord like? Do you ever play with this? You know, if I was God, I would, I don't know, what would you do if you were God? If I was God... Do you, do, you, do you never wonder why God couldn't just save everyone and ignore sin? Why can't God just save everyone and ignore sin? Well, as I was going to say, he's just too pure to do that. He's just too holy. You can't ignore sin. The question the Bible really asks, actually, the question we really get when we get who God is, is not, why can't God save everyone and ignore sin? The question we get, if we really understand who God is and who we are, if we really are those Isaiah 66 verse 2 people who tremble, how has he saved anyone? Why has he not just destroyed the whole lot? Time and time and time again through the Bible, you marvel that God stays his hand of judgment, that any of us are still alive at all. That's the right question. And of course, the reason he does that is because he's loving. You see, the answers to our why is the world like this questions come back to who God is, what God's like. And it's interesting, isn't it? I don't know what you thought as you went through the passage. My first reading, I kind of thought a third of it normal, what I expect, a third of it beautiful, and a third of it it's judgment, isn't it? You notice that? A third of it quite, quite harsh, quite hard maybe. You look at verse 12 and you think, oh yeah, that's exactly what I think the Bible should say. Verse 12, page 753. This is what the Lord says, I will extend peace to her like a river. And the wealth of nations like a flooding stream, you will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandle on her knees as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you, and you will be comforted forever. Oh, sorry, comforted over Jerusalem. You think that's exactly what the Bible should say. And you get to verse 15. But his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. And you think, hmm. The answer to your questions about that is always going to be, Look at the character of God. Why something as it is? Because of the character of the person who's in charge of it. We're going to see both sides of this judgment motif today. Judgment is both brilliant and awful. Of course judgment's awful, because some get judged. But judgment's brilliant because it's how God brings in his new world. How can imperfect people like us ever be in a perfect place? The problem with the world is me and you. 
well, how's the world going to get perfect? So we're going to see both sides of that today. The questions all come back to who's God? Who's God? Let's have a look. He's the God who speaks, who suckers and he says, and he mustn't be ignored. And basically it kind of works like he speaks, so don't ignore him. He suckers, so don't ignore him. He says, so don't ignore him. But we're just going to save it all up and do it at the end, okay? Because otherwise it gets a bit repetitive. Is that okay? So three sections. Let's look at verses 1 to 6. 1 to 6. The big contrast in the world is not between uh, some people hear God speak and some don't. That's not the contrast in the world. If it was, you'd ask the question, why can't God be clearer? But the contrast is not that. God is abundantly clear. The contrast in the world is not some who are naturally religious and some who aren't. So that the question becomes, why is Bertram not a Christian? And the answer becomes, well, he's not naturally religious. No, we're all religious, naturally. The question um, that, that separates the world is not... Don't some people need a crutch and some don't? You know, some people can survive life and some need some help and they turn to God. No, that doesn't separate the world. We all need help. We just turn to different things. The contrast across the world is that some hear God and listen and some hear God and don't. Some hear God and listen. Some hear God and don't. The contrast you see in these verses is between those who tremble at his word, verse 2, and those who choose their own ways. The choice is God's word or our ways. It's very straightforward. God's word or our ways. Look at verses 1 and 2. God says, heaven's my throne, earth my footstool. Where are you going to build a house for me? I'm the God who fills the universe. And you're going to put me in a stone building? Verse 2. Hasn't my hand made all of these things so that they came into being? I made it. You, You think you're building a building for me? Who made mud? Who made stones? Who made bricks? Who made mortar? Who made says God I don't want you to build a house for me I made everything I fill everything what I want is for you to recognize who I am and relate to me rightly second half of verse two I want you to be one who's humble and contrite in spirit and trembles his words God doesn't use people who know a lot God doesn't use people who have a lot he needs uses people who need him a lot you see it's exactly right what Matt started us off with this morning isn't it Imagine you're there in 1910. I take it for most of us that is imagined. But anyway, you're there in 1910, 100 years ago. And um, you're showing your son your new motor car. You've got a Model T Ford. You know, any color you like as long as it's black. Model T Ford on the front of your driveway. And you're showing your son the engine and how the engine works. And you're showing him how the drive shaft works. And you're showing him how the tires are pumped up. And you're showing him how it all fits together. And that's back in the day when you could kind of do that with engines. My car now, you just you take it to the garage and just plug a computer in. I, I, I'm powerless. My father spent ages trying to teach me how engines fit together, and now I've, it's just useless skills, aren't they? Because the, the engines are too, com, too, too compressed and too. Model T Ford, I think you've got a chance with that. You're showing him on your forecourt this Model T Ford, and Henry Ford walks up your driveway. What do you do? Do you blag it or do you shut up? And you get Henry Ford to show your son how the Ford works and you stand over his shoulder and try and learn yourself. You're there in 1975 and you're showing your son a Rubik's Cube which has just come out, just been invented. Mathematical puzzle. And you're showing him how it works and how you can solve it. And the the way to do it is to get the top layer first and you just learn how to pull things back so you do layer by layer, I think is the best way of solving it. World record, 7.12 seconds. It's slightly depressing. But anyway, there you are in 1975 showing your son how to solve a Rubik's Cube. And Erno Rubik's walks into the room. What do you do? 
Well, of course, if you're me, you just try and blag it, because that's kind of my natural instinct. Just, I'm just going to try and blag it and see if I can impress on everybody. So if you're sensible, what do you do? You give it to the guy that made it and say, talk us through how to do this. And that's what God's saying here. Did you get this? I made it all. Why didn't I show you what to do with it? I'm the God who speaks. So I can tell you what this universe is about. I can tell you how to work, how to, how to use it. The Lord is the speaking God. From the beginning to the end of the Bible, the Lord, the God of the universe, is making himself known. doesn't hide. He's not far from any of us. He's always making himself known. That's the story of the Bible. Garden of Eden, at the very beginning, creation, and the Lord walks in the garden with Adam. They walk and talk face to face. God's not hiding. He makes himself known. But humans do hide. They sin. They, they hide. Adam hides in the bushes, doesn't he? The God, then, the God who then speaks from a mountaintop to his people. But do you remember what happens? The people are terrified. And they say to Moses, oh, go up for us. We're terrified. We don't want to be with God. The humans hide themselves again. God who speaks in his written law, the Ten Commandments, and all the other ways it's teased out. But humans would rather burn them and make a golden calf themselves. They'd rather take their own ways. In God's words. The God who speaks through the prophets who are ignored or pilloried or killed. The God who speaks through Jesus Christ. When God comes on earth, the God-man perfect so that at his trial no one knew a single thing he had done wrong, what do we as humans do with him? We kill him. The murderer they save, the prince of life they slay. God who speaks today in his Bible. And how many of us in this universe, how many of us in this world, sorry, hang on its every word, as the words of a loving God. Still speaking today. At the coronation service in this country, the Queen is given a Bible. And it's with these, so she was given a Bible with these words. This book is the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. And we just don't believe that, do we? Does this country believe that anymore? This is the most valuable thing the world affords, this Bible. Because it's a speaking God. Speaking today to his people through his words. The Lord, the God of the universe, he's a speaking God. And the right response then is just like Henry Ford, just like Erno Rubik's. If the maker's there, you listen. You listen. God's word, that's one option. But the problem is we don't. Well, many of us don't. We go our ways. The alternative to listening to God's word is doing your own thing. It's DIY. Go your own way. That's verse 3, isn't it? Very end of verse 3. Their souls, uh, they have chosen their own ways. What they haven't got is that God fills the universe. They're trying to make him a temple. They're trying to put him in a box. They're trying to keep him in a geographical area. He says, I fill the universe. What they haven't got... It's that God made everything, verse 2, and they're trying to give him things. They give him a bull, verse 3. He says it's like committing murder. They give him a lamb, but it's like killing a dog. They give him a grain offering, but it's like giving me pig's blood. The stuff you try and give me, I made it. It doesn't doesn't please me. It doesn't help me. I don't need it. And do you see that's what humans naturally do when we don't listen to God's words? What what, What have all human ideas got in common when it comes to God, if they're not the God of the Bible? What have they all got in common? What they have in common is we're trying to get to God. We're trying to get to God. I know I'll make him a temple. That'll make him happy. I know I'll kill a bull. That'll make him happy. It's a difference, isn't it, between religion 
and the relationship that the Bible talks about. See, religion, verse 2, is building a house for God. Verse 3 is doing stuff for God, verse 4, but actually ignoring the God who speaks. Verse 5, it even sounds quite impressive, doesn't it, verse 5? They say, let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. It sounds very pious. But God judges it, end of verse 5, yet they will be put to shame. Isn't that a normal, common idea in all world religions, that we have to do stuff to be acceptable to God? In Roman Catholicism, you come to confession and you're told to say some Hail Marys. You're encouraged to do some penance or some good works. The works, official Catholic doctrine, without which the right does not have its effect. Those things you do, without which the right does not have its effect. It's things you do to be right with God, things you do to be right with the God of the universe. Or in Islam, you, one of the things you have to do, there's lots, is to take a pilgrimage to Mecca. Every able-bodied Muslim must. It's a thing you do to be right with God. It's just typical of all the world religions. And of course, there's Christian-looking versions too. There's versions that might sing some of the same songs we sing that might look, look, end up in buildings like this that might have organs or guitars or what. There's Christian versions too if we ignore God's words, we start doing stuff to try and be right with God. That's what our own ways always become. But relationship is what God offers instead. Relationship is what God offers instead. It is listening to the God who speaks. Verse 4. Because he calls, but no one answers. He speaks and no one listens. You see, God is speaking and he's calling out and he wants a relationship. And we can choose. God's words are ways. See, God's words is not us climbing up a ladder. It's not us trying to do stuff to get up to God. God's words is God calling down the ladder. God who comes down. God who doesn't say, you work your way up to me. God who says, I'm coming down to you. He's a speaking God who always makes himself known because he's longing for a relationship. And that's why the irony of verse 6 is massive, isn't it? Where does God's judgment start on these people? At the very center of their religion. In the temple. The house they're trying to make for God, that is where the judgment starts. Hear the uproar, hear the noise. From the temple, that is the Lord repaying his enemies. All they deserve. God who speaks. And he calls us to relationship and not religion. He calls us to God's words, not our ways. But then he suckers, verses 7 to 17. I know it's an old-fashioned word, but sucker, it's just a word for aiding or supporting or comforting. It's the mother suckering her child at her breast. So it's a picture of maternal care. I just wanted three S's, okay? Because people with brains like mine, remember, speaks, suckers, and saves. So forgive me for the old words. God is the mother who looks after his children. And do you notice the move towards the future here, verse 7? This is, this is moving on to future stuff. Verses 1 to 6, that was current back in those days. These verses now are future. You get will, this will, this will, this will, this will happen. And the promise is a miraculous birth. Did you notice this? Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Now, I think a lot of mums would probably like that, wouldn't they? Wouldn't that be nice? Save those 36 hours of pain. It's a miraculous birth in verse 7. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who's ever heard of such a thing? In the days before C-sections, who's ever heard of such a thing? Can a country be born in a day 
or a nation brought forth in an instant. God is making community and offering comforts. God is making community and offering comforts. And, and a country can be brought forth in a day. What happened on the day of Pentecost? Do you remember the first day when the Holy Spirit was given in Acts chapter 2? Do you remember what happened on that day? 3,000 people became Christians. So it went from 12 terrified people praying in an upper room to thousands. In, in how long? In, in a couple of hours? Can a country be born in a day? Yeah. The nation can be born in a day. You see, the, God's great work is to multiply his people. That's what God does. Remember in the parable of the sower, the seeds? Some seed falls on this soil, some on that, some on that. The seed that falls on good soil multiplies 30, 60, 100 fold. See, God's never been to primary school. He can't do timetables. He can't do one times two is two, and two times two is four, and two times three is six. He can't do that. He says one, 30, 60, 100. That's God's times tables, isn't it? What God does is multiplies people. So in AD 70, the Jerusalem temple was finally destroyed by an invading army. But by, by, by that stage, the church was 40 years old, 40 years after Pentecost. And the gospel had gone out to most of the known world, to Judea and Samaria within weeks. Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, the, the gospel's gone to Africa almost immediately. Paul ends up in Rome at the end of, of Acts. It's the, the center of the known world. He's in the, right in the hub of all the known world, in chains, preaching the gospel. The, the gospel goes out. Paul journeys around the Mediterranean. He goes to Spain and so on. In 1 Peter, we hear of Christians in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. How many thousands of Christians were there, even before the temple got finally destroyed in AD 70? Can a country be born in a day? Yeah. Can a nation be brought forth in a day? Yeah. It was. The church was there, even before the temple was fully and finally destroyed. God multiplies his people, doesn't he? Soul by soul and silently, the shining bands increase, and the ways are ways of gentleness, and all their paths are peace. It's a huge family that we're members of. It doesn't feel like it in the office. It doesn't feel like it at home sometimes. It's a massive family we're members of as Christians. 6.3 billion people in the world today, and 2 billion calling themselves Christians. It's a third of the globe we belong to. That's a pretty big family, isn't it? And here in the West, we worry, don't we, because Islam is growing so strongly. Islam might grow in Christianity two to one in the West in terms of converts. Two to one, Islam might grow in Christianity in the West. The stats across the whole globe is that Christianity is outgrowing any other religion. Three to one. It does feel tight here sometimes. But soul by soul and silently, the shining bands are increasing as God is growing his community all around the world. That's what we just sung, wasn't it? Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. And he will. We just asked him to. He will. He'll speak until his church is built. But he offers comfort as well. Community and comfort. The comfort of a nourishing mother. That peculiar bond. My father once caused outrage. He was a, my father's a preacher. And he started the sermon once with these words. I spent the happiest years of my life in the arms of another man's wife. It's quite eye-catching, isn't it? I spent the happiest years of my life in the arms of another man's wife. Meaning, of course, his mum. Happiest years of our lives. Being uh, suckered by our mothers. The early days of the church were not easy at all. But God nursed them. God cared for them. And verse 11, they were satisfied with his goodness. 
That's why Paul, the earliest missionary, could write, towards the end of his life, he could write and say, comfort one another with the comfort you've received. Comfort one another with the comfort you received. He was happy in any situation. And he'd been shipwrecked three times, lashed with 40 lashes five times, beaten with rods three times, stoned a night and day in the open sea. He's happy. He's content. I know the secret of plenty. I know the secret of one. Whether I'm fed or hungry, Jesus is all I want. The church in those early years went through horrible times and were comforted. And the church still, today, Christians go through hard times and can still say God comforts us like a nursing mother. Now, I I have about 10 weeks' experience of being a parent, so you'll have to forgive me. Lots of you have much more experience than I. But it seems that one of the key jobs of a mother is not to immediately do what the child wants. One of the key jobs of a parent, in fact, is not to immediately do what the child wants. It's not loving always to make life perfectly easy for your child. It's not loving to give all they ask for. It's not kind to come immediately when they cry. Again, my parents taught me this. When I was eight, I started praying for a motorbike. I was prayed very seriously for it. I was quite a kind of stubborn kind of guy, so I prayed for about a year and a half every day for a motorbike. And I told my parents that. And I you know, said, don't you love me? Are you not hearing me? And I told my Heavenly Father that. Don't you love me? Are you not hearing me? Well, yeah, they love me, and yeah, they heard me, and yeah, they refused me a motorbike for fairly obvious reasons, because what's an eight-year-old going to do with a motorbike? Apart from hurt himself or other people. But parents, the hard thing that I found in just ten weeks is what's the right amount of care to give? It's not loving to give everything straight away. It's not loving to go straight away when they cry. But, but don't mums give real comfort? Don't parents, when we have good days, get it right? True, genuine comfort? And so it is with God. He doesn't give us everything we are straight away. He doesn't take away the hardships. They're really useful for us, just like they are with young children. But he does give us real comfort. Verses 12, 13, 14. He comforts us. He will extend peace like a river. He will give wealth. As a mother comforts a child, so I will comfort you. You'll be comforted forever. He does give real comfort, peace, comfort, comfort, and rejoicing in those verses. And again, we get what we expect. Verse 15, 17, he mustn't be ignored. We'll come back to that at the end. Do you see, God who suckers us, who brings us into community, and who gives us great comfort. And then thirdly, he's the God who saves. The God who saves, verses 18 to 25. Here you see in verse 18 a one-sentence summary of all of God's plans for the entire world ever. I don't know if you noticed it. Did it stand out to you like that? I don't think I noticed it the first 15 times, but have a look. And I, because of their actions and their imaginations, am about to come and gather all nations and tongues, and they will come and see my glory. That's the Lord who, who, who owns and runs and made the universe. That's his plan for the world. We see three things there. We see gathering, we see glory, and we see God's grace. All in verse 18. Gathering, glory, and grace. If you like, who, how, and why. First of all, who, gathering. You can't miss it in verses 18 to 24. Gathering. So gather, verse 18. Gather the nations, verse 18. Verse 19. The nations. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. Verse 20, all the nations. Verse 23, all mankind, you see. It's all about gathering. That is God's great work, to gather people. 
And who does God long to bless? Everyone. All the nations. All the nations. All the nations. People will be sent, won't they, to Tubal, to Tarshish, the Libyans, the Lydians, verse 19. We saw that happen in Acts. As a church spread around the world. All of mankind. No ethnic barriers, no geographical barriers, no national barriers. And it's a family gathering, verse 20. And they will bring all your brothers. It's brothers and sisters. It's a family Christmas, only much better than all of our family Christmases. It's a family gathering that God's about around the world. He saves by gathering. Secondly, glory. So what do they gather to see in verse 18? They gather together to come to see my glory. Now that might sound weird. The God who, who calls people to see his glory could sound proud, self-obsessed, could sound... Well, it would be wrong, wouldn't it, if a human was to do that? But because God is the greatest and best and most precious being in the world, to come to him and see him, that is the best thing he can give. It's the best thing he can give. This is a very tenuous illustration, but it's the best I've got. Okay, imagine there's a a school reunion. Um, And imagine you're 26 years old and you go back to a school reunion. And in that school reunion is someone called Cheryl Cole, who I'm told is... um, has won various uh, awards this year for being the most popular female star on the globe and stuff. Uh, she's a singer, for those of you who don't know who I'm talking about. Cheryl Cole, married to Ashley Cole, at least at the moment. And imagine that Cheryl Cole is in that room at the school reunion, and there's all these people that you've all forgotten each other because you haven't seen each other for 10 years. But she is hugely rich, very successful, adored around the globe. What's the best present she can give to anyone in that room? time with her half the world is queuing up for time with Cheryl Cole time to be in front of her and sing for her on X Factor or some other dodgy musical program what's the best thing that you can do if you're Cheryl Cole in that room you can give them yourself can't you it's a tenuous illustration but it's kind of what's going on with God God is the most precious the best the greatest the purest the most perfect in the whole universe. What better gift could God give than himself? That's the joy of Christianity, is that we see God and we know God. Jesus equates it with eternal life. This is eternal life, that you know the Father. See, knowing God, that is the high point of Christianity. So he gathers to see his glory by grace. Now, the grace thing is a bit more hidden, but what's going on at the start of verse 18? What's going on at the start of verse 18? And I, because of their actions and their imaginations. Did anybody else get a bit confused by that? I, because of their actions and their imaginations. The key thing to notice here is that those actions and imaginations were entirely against God. See, what are the actions that they've done so far? Verse 3, he says, I hate all you do. They've chosen their own ways and they've sold the lies in their abomination. So I will choose a harsh treatment for them. The actions they've done is to spurn God's words and take their own ways. And God says, because of their actions, I'll gather them to see my glory. Do you see? Or their imaginations. In the, in the previous chapter, we saw that people were stuck with their own imaginations. He says, a people who continually provoke me, pursuing their own imaginations. 
They're not positive words. They're not saying, oh, well done, having a good have the imagination class prize this year. It's awful what they're doing. They're ignoring him. But because of it, verse 18, because of their actions and imaginations, I'm going to gather them. It's because God's all about grace. It's because God's all about grace. It's easy to think, isn't it, that those who are blessed are the good people, the moral people, the nice people, the right people, the righteous people. But the people that God gathers to see his glory are the sinful people, the people who hate him, the people who spurn him, the people who annoy him, the people whose smell is like a stench in his nostrils. Those are the people God says, come, see my glory. Those are the people God blesses. Jesus hung on the cross. Do you remember Jesus hung on the cross outside Jerusalem? And at that point on the cross, two people became Christians. Do you remember who they were? Are they the earliest Christians? Do you have to have a resurrection to become a Christian? Probably. So they're not quite the earliest Christians. But pretty early, right? Two people become Christians when Jesus is on the cross. Can you remember who? One's a thief who's being crucified with him. And Jesus turns to him and says, Today I'll be with you in paradise. A condemned man becomes a Christian. Second person who becomes a Christian is a centurion who killed Jesus. Jember, seeing how Jesus died, he said, Truly, this man is the Son of God. That's what's going on here in verse 18. It's people who, whose actions and imaginations are abhorrent, who deserve to be crucified. People who killed the Lord of glory. They're the people God calls and he gathers and says, come see my glory because it's only by grace. That's what we're going to celebrate in a minute, the Lord's Supper. What's this going to be about as we meet around the table? It's going to be a gathering of people from all nations who come to see the glory of the Lord in this enacted gospel and we're only there by grace. See verse 18, it's a statement about the whole of God's plans for the whole of the universe. And he must not be ignored. Repeatedly through the passage, verses 3, 4, 5, 6, you can't ignore him, the God who speaks. Verse 15, 16, 17, if you ignore him, he will judge you. Verse 24, Isaiah, right? Isaiah is one of the two greatest books in the Old Testament. It's one of the massive highlights of the Old Testament. Last verse, a bit of a surprise to anyone? How does does Isaiah end? And they will go out... And look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me, and their worm will not die, nor their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. Now that's a bit of a surprise for most of us, reading Isaiah, knowing that it's one of the highlights of the Old Testament. But you see that one of the things Isaiah's been saying as we wait for this new world is, I've been clear. God is saying, I've been clear. I've been clear throughout history. And this side of the cross, 2,000 years after Jesus came and lived and died and rose again, how much more clear has God been? And when Jesus came, what did he do? He went straight to the Jews. He went straight to those who'd built a temple. Mark 11, Mark 12, he said, you need to come away from this temple. He said, God's going to judge this temple. He preached to them the kingdom. He preached to them about righteousness they could be given. He preached that he was the servant that Isaiah had been talking about all those years ago. He said to them, come away from this temple. He warned about its destruction. And they destroyed him. He warned about the temple's destruction. But it's God's people, Israel, who killed him. What about this sign in verse 19? I will set a sign among the nations. 
I also had a sign among the nations. What's the sign? What sign is there to all the nations from which, verse 19, people are sent out to all those nations we saw in Acts? What's the sign? It's the cross, isn't it? The great sign where God calls all nations to him. And what happens at the exact moment of the cross? What happens at the exact moment Jesus died? Two things. Number one, the temple is destroyed. The curtain is ripped from top to bottom and broken forever. The temple is destroyed. Number two, the centurion becomes a Christian. See, what happens at this great public sign is the temple is destroyed. That's Mark 15, verse 38. That's the next verse after Jesus dies. And the next verse after that is that all the nations, this, this Gentile, not a Jew, Someone who wasn't part of God's people was welcomed into the kingdom. See, this sign is there. And there exists this place of succor forever. This place of comfort. This community of God's people. This is Jerusalem, God's perfect city. This is, if you like, God himself. God embodied in a place. But what happens as you walk up to this city? What happens when you approach this eternal city, this place of comfort for all Christians for all time, is you see a graveyard, verse 24. As you walk to a city, there's a graveyard. There's a graveyard of those who've ignored God. It's reinforced in the, Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ's own words. He picks up that word about the worm not dying. And he warns about this eternal destruction. It's picked up at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 19. Their smoke goes up forever and ever. There'll always be a memory, even forever, of God's good, right, and fair judgments. But as always through Isaiah, and as always through our lives in the Christian message, there's always the other option. You don't have to be in the graveyard. You see, Isaiah finishes with verse 24, presumably for a reason. And the reason is we have to not forget the graveyard. We have to not forget the destruction. There's two ways to live our life and die our death. There's listening to God's word and trembling because he's God. Or there's going our own ways. But they're divergent, aren't they? Because if we tremble at God's words, then by grace we're gathered to see God's glory. But our own ways don't take us to the city. They take us to a graveyard. They take us to a place of misery and poverty, of loathsomeness to all mankind. And there's no need to be there. It's interesting uh, for me to finish my last thing I ever say to the morning congregation, and I get to finish on verse 24. This is my final sermon. I'm around for a few more weeks. And my final sermon for you, for us as a congregation, that I've been a member of since the first day. And I get verse 24. Why? Why is it here for Isaiah? Why is it here for us? Remember that verse 24 exists and avoid it. Stick with Christ. Stick to the gospel. Keep coming to the city. That's one of the reasons verse 24 is there. Remember verse 24 is there and weep for the lost. Cry tears over those who are at the moment destined for the graveyard. Who are not coming to the city. Pray for them. Spur yourself on. Do whatever you can to reach them. To offer them the hope that Isaiah offers. Of a God who saves. Look forward perhaps to verse 23, where all mankind will come and bow before God forever. 
But isn't the point really to look at the Lord who makes it all possible? You see, all our questions come back to him eventually. The Lord who's too kind, too gracious, too loving to condemn all of us, even though we deserve it. Too right and just and fair to ignore sin. But the God who speaks clearly and says, come to me. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Come to me. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we praise you for the Lord that you are. The sovereign Lord over the nations, the sovereign Lord of the universe, whose throne is heaven and whose footstool earth, whose hand made everything. And we thank you that you make yourself clear to us by speaking. We praise you that you offer true succor and comfort and blessing to all. We praise you that you save those who don't deserve it. And we pray, Father, that you teach us not to ignore you. Whether we've been loving you all of our lives, or this is the first we've heard, how we long not to ignore you, not to turn away, not to spurn you, but to listen to you, the loving Lord who speaks and offers us great blessings. We ask that all in Jesus' name. Amen.